0: You've heard the saying, timing is everything, right? European racing may be headed for a revolution in the timing of races, and it looks pretty familiar. We'll explain. Plus, we've talked on this show about the proposed Horse Racing Integrity Act that's percolating in the House of Representatives. But will it be the panacea that so many hope it will? Not so fast, my friend. We'll explain on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in.
1: They and they're off as they move to the top of the It's a finish.
0: This is in the gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at babramsvoice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Perhaps you've heard of the Mayans the ancient civilization that inhabited Mexico and Central America. Maybe you visited the Mayan ruins at Tulum, Mexico. You might know that the Mayans were among the most advanced civilizations on Earth at the time they lived, as far back as 4,500 years ago. They were architects and engineers who knew how to use water pressure technology to build aqueducts, not the racetrack. They produced rubber thousands of years before white people learned how to do it. They were astronomers who had a pretty sophisticated calendar, and there's a whole lot more as well. But the Mayans were wiped out, in part due to Spanish explorers in the 1500s. The Spanish thought they were a superior culture, but the people from the Americas had more going for them than the Europeans thought. What does this have to do with horse racing? Well, nothing really, except this. Earlier this month, a weekend full of races held at Newmarket, England, including the prestigious Falmouth Stakes, won by Voracious for Sir Michael Stout, were timed with a more sophisticated system than Europeans have regularly used. You could get quarter mile sectional times for each of those races at Newmarket. Whereas normally, as you know if you've ever looked at past performances of European races, only the final time is typically available there, along with a comment line. That's it. I think you're getting where we're going with this. We here in North America are playing the role of the Mayans, since sectional timing has been a mainstay of North American past performances. When exactly that started is unclear, but the Daily Racing Forms archives show that on June 11th, 1896, there were sectional times for the first race at Oakley Park in Cincinnati. The first eighth, quarter, half-mile and five furlong final time. That's 1896. Nonetheless, as NBC once said of its lineup of summer rerun shows, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. And so it is with sectional timing for European races. To talk more about the implementation of sectional timing, we welcome in Ed Gretton, the director of racing for Racecourse Media Group, one of those entities involved in the process. We appreciate your being here, sir. What was the impetus behind adding sectional timing now?
2: Barry, in the, in the, in the UK, uh, sectional timing has been sort of here and there for the last 15 years. Not, not very much, but of late, two or three companies have been um, introducing GPS systems into the UK, which is really what is required in terms of cost and technology to track horses accurately and uh, that, that's really the impetus. GPS has driven it, and uh, there's some funding available in the next three years from the central levy on racing, which is going to help that development of, of, and roll out of, across, across British racing.
0: What is the reason this data has not been available before this new initiative in Europe?
2: Uh, I think uh, in Europe, I'm referencing the UK, Barry. The, um, it's been a question of technology, really. All, all of the UK racecourses are unique in terms of the layout, the ups and downs of the courses, and so which is, is where things differ from from the U.S. And so having a kind of break beam system on U.K. courses wouldn't really work in the same way uh, because, you know, courses are left-handed, right-handed, they're ovals, they're circles, they're straight courses. And so GPS technology is, is the first time we've, we've um, the, the vision of, of having a, a system that is cost effective and can deliver accurate data is, is, has been on the table.
0: So this system doesn't work with laser beams, it works with GPS.
2: Yeah, and it's not just one system. There are three systems in in use in the UK. One system has been in use for a couple of years, and two new ones have started starting this summer to produce produce data.
0: Now, interestingly, if you're saying GPS, you know, here in the States, because we use the laser beam technology, there's a run-up from the opening of the gate to where the timing actually begins, and it differs from track to track. At some tracks, it's 50 yards, for example. So the first two or three jumps out of the gate are essentially untimed. So I'm guessing that won't be the case with Europe when you look at past performance data. It's from the second that gate opens.
2: Correct. Yeah, the the, the timing will start from the exact time that the, that the gates open.
0: Now, as we said, you essentially ran a test at Newmarket in mid-July. So how did that system perform?
2: I work for Racecourse Media Group Barry, we We have 34 Racecourse shareholders, and, and Newmarket was the first. We've been testing the system for a long time, and Newmarket was the first time. We started publicly producing data. There's another company in, in the UK that's been doing it for a couple of years. great, and also um, Total Performance Data, and long jeans have been working at Ascot at the Royal Meeting. So it's sort of new and baby steps. We, you know, we, we will be continuing to produce the data at the major meetings before a, a wider rollout of regular data, and that's where we're heading. So it's good to get started at Newmarket.
0: Ed Gretton of Racecourse Media Group is with us here on In the Gate. Now I can see the user feedback falling into one or two of these categories. A, wow, we're so glad to have this. B, what took you so long to make this happen here? C, we don't really want that information because that's not how we've done it here. So how much of each of these sentiments have you heard? I
2: think, I think people are excited about the, what, what, this accurate performance data can provide um, in the UK you know the way that you look at form in the US is obviously different and the way the guys you know betters and and people engage with horse racing and looked at data in the UK will need to adapt to involve this and how we we actually produce that data is key there'll be some people who are very excited about it you know we have some evangelists in, in the timing in the timing world in the UK who'll be very excited about the actual detail but To a lot of people, it will still be intelligible. And so it'll be up to us to tell that story properly to the wider racing followers who who might not be absolute detailed form experts.
0: And to that extent, how aware are those people that sectional timing is available in North America?
2: Well, I think in terms of that, that is an opportunity. I think because this, this data can be reworked to provide, for example, to American consumers, if UK horse racing can be reworked to provide the sort of format that you are used to um so i think that's an opportunity for for u.s bettors on uk horse racing to better understand it and that's one of the one of the things we'll have to get into as we as we roll it out
0: what tangible effect do you think this will have on the racing and betting industries in the uk
2: i think um that data in all sports is is massively in use from basketball to football here cricket and it's being used by broadcasters and publishers alike to bring the performance to life, and that's in the live broadcast and that, and also in the results and articles. You know, X player ran 700 yards. What does that really mean? Not a lot, but it sounds good, necessarily. And but it will be, I think, this this performance data allows will allow those those who cover horse racing to engage to provide more engaging coverage. Sorry to you, yeah, of, of horse racing. More interesting facts, you know, it's been done in all other sports, and there'll be bright, intelligent people who, who can convert this data to tangible, interesting comments on, on horse racing, which will be able to engage a wider, wider population.
0: Wow, past performance charts that look the same between North America and the UK. Next thing you know, we'll all be using the same money. Who knows? Stick around.
2: You know, it's, well, the, the pound is very similar to the dollar at the moment, so, yeah, it's, we're, on, we're on parity almost, yeah, Sorry.
0: Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this. I look forward to having a better chance to handicap all these races before the Breeders' Cup rolls around. Thank you, Barry. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, so many people in thoroughbred racing are putting a lot into making the Horse Racing Integrity Act the federal bill that saves the sport's credibility. Uh not so fast, my friend. We'll talk with a vet who has a keen eye on this bill, and says it's not what it's cracked up to be, so don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. Here are some things you thought were one thing, but are really something else. A firefly is not a fly, it's a beetle. A shooting star is not a star, it's a meteorite. You may have known that one. Shortbread is not bread. It's a cookie, a thick one. You know what else might not be as it seems? The proposed Horse Racing Integrity Act of 2019, which would put the rulemaking and enforcement of medication rules for horse racing into the hands of a governmental organization, most likely the United States Anti-Doping Authority, USADA. Proponents of the Horse Racing Integrity Act think the bill will be a panacea for the many ills that plague the sport, particularly the problems at Santa Anita this past winter. We've talked about the bill on this show, including a professor who knows how the federal government really works and who said that the bill's chances of becoming law – cue the song from Schoolhouse Rock – are very slim. Well, since that podcast we did, which referred to the bill in the House of Representatives, a similar bill has arisen in the Senate. That does amplify somewhat the chance that not only might the bills advance, but that with both chambers thinking about the idea of third-party drug regulation, it might one day become a reality. I still think the chance of that is pretty slim, but there's progress. Because of that, it is worth at this point hearing from someone who sees the holes in the proposed Horse Racing Integrity Act, what it would accomplish, and what it would not accomplish if passed is there a way to improve either or both of the active bills to give the idea the teeth it needs to be successful? For that perspective, we welcome in for the first time here to win the gate 30-plus-year veterinarian Dr. Sheila Lyons, founder and director of the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. You seem almost disappointed that the Horse Racing Integrity Act would only accomplish two things— creating uniform rules and regulations amongst all states, and eliminating drugs on race day. What makes you use the word only in your critique?
1: The reason I use the word only and that I see that in that light is that that really will not get to the heart of the problems that we have related to these drugs that goes to not only the the safety Uh, the high mortality rate, but the um, morbidity uh, rate that we have where these horses are developing permanent pathologies in just a few short years in the sport. So if all we do is eliminate race day medication, and and let's face it, we're talking about Lasix there, and I think that's a good thing to eliminate that, um, is that... uh, We're not going to be addressing the widespread abuse of drugs that leads to the real problems that we're trying to um, find a solution to.
0: Well, it sounds like you're getting at that you can't have these drugs on race day, according to this proposed rule, but you can train with them. And that's just as much of an issue for you is what it sounds like.
1: Well, not only that, there are um, a lot of problems with this proposed legislation. For one, it would um, establish a list of permitted or therapeutic medications, and I can tell you that no medication is in it of itself therapeutic. It's only therapeutic in a therapeutic context. So let's, for example, take um, one of the most common conditions that racehorses can actually be expected to have during their career, and that would be an acute Fetlock arthritis. So an appropriate treatment when you have that condition, which is an overuse injury, it just means that that horse either went a little further or went a little faster or the the track came up a little bit harder or there was some change in surface so that the body was not acclimated to the work that it was just asked to do. So that's very common and that's the way bodies strengthen. That's how they become fitter and stronger and faster is by doing micro damage, and then allowing that body to to respond to the micro damage, not only by healing it, but by strengthening. The body says, gee, you know, we've never had those loads on it before. It looks like we need to lay down more bone here. But that process that is playing out, that's trying to play out in these horses is uh, interrupted when you simply administer an anti-inflammatory medication and then continue to train. The acute arthritis tells you that there's damage there. So whether you remove the outward sign of that, which would be the heat and inflammation associated with it and and perhaps the lameness, that doesn't mean that the body has had time to heal it. So rest is an essential component for that drug to have a truly therapeutic effect. So what this legislation does and and what uh, all the states are doing, and and they're doing it for originally, I think, good intentions. You know, you don't want veterinarians to have their hands tied when we need to treat horses for the common conditions that they acquire in any sport, So you come up with a list of drugs and you say, we understand that you need to use these drugs from time to time. So we're going to permit them to be in the horse, whether it's they're withdrawn a few days before the race or for a long time, they were allowed even on race day. But the problem with that is that if the horse continues to race and train, then that ends the therapeutic context So that that drug can be beneficial and instead what it does is it accommodates the continued training and racing of an injured animal.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, just to give a human analogy of the micro damage re-healing thing, isn't that the same concept in weight training that your muscle fibers are suffering micro damage from lifting weights and then when they remodel, that's when your muscles get bigger?
1: Exactly, exactly. And the same thing happens to bone. The same thing happens if, if you have young children in your household and you watch them grow and you see they, you know, they'll stand up and at first they'll just take a few steps and then they'll crash right down to the ground and crawl around for a while. Well, you know, bones are programmed so that they will strengthen um, in response to increments in increased load. You know, you you can't, you know, suddenly uh, take that toddler and and have them run a 5k race, you know, you would break down their bones. Well, the same thing applies to these racehorses, they need to be incrementally stressed in increasing degrees, to the point where what we're asking them to do in a race is well within their uh, capacity that we have um, had their bones adapt to, so that they can then—it's just the fastest horse because they're all um, equally prepared if we use science, but but by using these drugs during training, and by um, uh, the fact that veterinarians have been so willing. To accommodate the trainers requests for these drugs what I hear all the time from trainers when I sit them down and tell them you know what has been going on in their horse's body and the opportunities that have been missed to uh, have pathology resolve very easily now it may be permanent now the, the damage to a joint may be irreversible and what I hear again and again and again from young trainers and old trainers is the same thing. Why didn't my vet tell me this? Why, why am I hearing this from you? I didn't know the horse was barely lame. You know, it's hard to believe that just because I gave this horse that drug, you know, whenever it uh, worked or whenever it raced, you know, it was was never even really lame. And now you're telling me because I've done that over the course of the the last several months or, or a year or so with this horse that now there's nothing that can be done. So they believe that because the veterinarian is delivering the drugs, then it couldn't be a bad thing. But I'm afraid that that's uh, just not the case, and that's been proven again and again.
0: Now, back in 2013, the chairman of USADA, Travis Tigart, testified before a House subcommittee that the only way USADA would have any teeth in regulating any sport, in this case horse racing, would be as an independent third-party authority. You write of your concern that USADA would not have independent authority. What makes you think that?
1: Uh, It's because the legislation calls for the creation of this so-called authority, but where six of the members, while they would initially be appointed by USADA or selected from a uh, list, I guess, that is provided to them, that those six individuals are all representatives of the industry themselves. I think one has to be a rider, one has to be a trainer, Uh, there's a breeder, owner, and only one of them, by the way, is a veterinarian and all of this legislation is speaking to the use of drugs and yet we have nothing but lay people with, with one exception all talking about the regulation of drugs. And the legislation calls for a two-third majority in order for any of its regulations to be enacted. And if USADA has uh, seven members and this committee has six members, then that means if that committee of six votes as a block, then they can block anything that USADA would choose to put forth as a regulation. And the other thing that this committee of six does is it controls the budget. So let's just be ridiculous um, to make an example. If the committee of six decided, okay, USADA, have at it, you can regulate Drugs any way you choose to do it, and we'll even pass all of the regulations that you want to put forth, and we'll give you a thousand dollars to regulate drugs in horse racing this year. It, you know, it, whoever controls the purse strings is going to control regulation, and the way this legislation is set up, that committee of six horse industry insiders, that portion of the committee will control the budget
0: so is this what makes you feel that usada would leave the uh regulatory agency after five years which the house bill stipulates that usada would be officially connected for five years and you assume they would not be after that is this part of your thought process on that
1: Uh, It is. I listened very carefully to the testimony of Mr. Tigert at that hearing, and I also testified at that hearing and had a chance to have some discussions with him. And I believed him when he said that USADA will only become involved in Uh, regulating uh, anti-doping for any sport, and up until now they've all been the human sports, if they're given complete authority and that it would fail because you simply can't have that conflict of interest involved in the anti-doping authority. So when I saw that this legislation already had an exit for USADA, then that's when a lot of the conversations that I've had with the some individuals who have been promoting this legislation—that's that's where it uh, sort of clicked in my mind that that was the intention all along. Bring USADA in, you know, have them sort of, if you want, show the this new authority the ropes, so to speak. But. Anti-doping authority does not rely on simply setting rules. It relies upon the incredible expertise that an organization like USADA or WADA has developed over decades. And when, and I do say when USADA leaves the authority, Then we have anti-doping regulation left in the hands of a committee of six horse racing industry individuals where four of them would make up the two-thirds majority. So we would essentially have anti-doping controlled by four individuals. Who are not veterinarians necessarily. The veterinarian may not be in that majority. So you would have four lay people who, at least in the past, have had strong ties in the industry, and they would be setting all the rules, setting all of the sanctions. I just think that that's a a prescription for disaster.
0: We're chatting here on In the Gate with Dr. Sheila Lyons of the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation. Now, I know you brought up the enforcement issue, but I want to get back to the rules for just a moment here. Another issue is the authorities control versus state control. And that brings up a couple of points for discussion here. First of all, right now, rules governing medication and the administering of that medication come from individual states. In your critique, you say that medication control is ultimately achieved through individual states' statutes. That makes it sound like you don't even want the proposed authority to have ultimate control. So where do you stand on that?
1: Well, by all means, any sport, whether it's human or one that involves animal athletes, needs to set its own standards that enforce additional restrictions on the use of medications, of course, for preventing performance enhancement, to prevent injury masking. But the sports themselves don't decide what drugs are appropriate therapy. That comes strictly from state veterinary boards. So, for example, when I earned my doctorate in veterinary medicine and uh, I paid a lot of money and I uh, went to school for a very long time. When I walked away from commencement ceremony with my doctor of veterinary medicine degree in my hand, I had no more authority to prescribe medication than you do. That authority only came once I became licensed by a state veterinary board. So the authority to prescribe, to administer, to dispense drugs comes strictly from state veterinary boards with the caveat that the FDA and the DEA, the federal agencies, in the cases of some drugs, it exert additional control. So, uh, for example, if it's appropriate within standard of care for me to prescribe a narcotic uh, pain reliever for an animal, then I not only have to abide by the state law with respect to standard of care for veterinarians, but I also must abide by additional federal laws that comes to, the conditions under which I can prescribe it and how I label it and how I handle those substances because they have a high potential for abuse. So that's where drugs are regulated, whether you're a physician or a veterinarian. So to suggest that some federal authority that doesn't grant the authority in the first place to the vet, to the licensed veterinarians who have access to these drugs, that they are in some way going to give permission to use those drugs, violates state law.
0: Well, I understand what you're saying. That's different from saying that somebody like USADA would say, here are the drugs that can be given to horses, that's not the same as saying that you, Dr. Sheila Lyons, have the right to administer those drugs to those horses. Am I getting that right?
1: That's right. And, and there's there's a term called the veterinarian-client-patient relationship. And basically, what that, that's sort of shorthand for standard of care. And what it means is that, if If I have a racing commission license as a veterinarian, so now I have agreed to not only abide by that state's veterinary board statutes, but I also agree to abide by the regulations um that govern that uh, horse racing in that state. Um, that uh, but but my authority, um, still goes back only to standard of care. So, and that standard of care means I must take a history from the client. I must examine that animal and make a diagnosis or a differential diagnosis, uh, several things that it could be. I need to perform whatever diagnostic tests are necessary for me to confirm that diagnosis. Then I can only select a drug to treat that condition if it is given in a therapeutic context, which means that if a horse requires rest in order to recover from something like a a transient traumatic arthritis, then I have to make sure that that advice goes with that drug. Now that's different than the um, federal authority saying you can use two grams of bute up to 24 hours before a race. Now, what they're really saying is, if there's a proper therapeutic context, then from from a racing standpoint, we will uh, uh, we will allow that. But what they're not saying is that, you know, we give permission to give those drugs, and yet that's exactly how that many track-practicing veterinarians and trainers view these permitted substances, they look at them like it's a Chinese menu. You know, you can take one from column A and two from column B, and, gee, I have a horse that is going to race in a week. So they start selecting the drugs in accordance with what the the state uh, racing commission rules will let them get away with. And that needs to stop, and that's why this legislation, I feel, is very dangerous because it plays into that mindset of there are permitted medications, that there will be sanctions given through this horse racing authority that will be set up only if you violate their prohibitions. But there's nothing in this legislation that says we will make sure that for every dose of every drug that's given, that the standard of care is being upheld.
0: And what is that standard of care? Tell me again.
1: Well, the standard of care is that um, before I can prescribe a drug for a patient, I need to take a history, I need to do a physical exam, I need to do tests to make a diagnosis, that whatever drug I prescribe has to be in keeping with what would be therapeutic. Um, And it has to be in a therapeutic context. So you can't say, on the one hand, I've diagnosed an acute Fetlock arthritis in your horse, so I'm going to prescribe phenylbutazone for it so that you can continue to race and train it. That's not a therapeutic context. It needs time off. And then once that joint has healed and that horse is sound and there's no inflammation when there are no drugs in effect, then the horse can go back to racing and training. And that would it would be a far more efficient way of managing these horses because they, while they would get time off on a fairly regular basis, we're talking about a few days here, maybe a week there. At the end of the year, you still have a healthy joint, whereas if you keep training them through these things and racing them through, then in a matter of months, you, you have a horse that now has lost the capacity to become normal.
0: How much do you think the problems that Santa Anita this year and the negative publicity that has followed has impacted the urgency and details associated with this push for drug reform in the sport?
1: I think it's had a great impact. Uh, I have to say that I have never seen the public engaged in the way they are now. For instance, in California, I have uh, both racing clients and show horse clients. And some of my show horse clients come from racing families that are no longer in the sport. And it used to be that those show horse clients would say, "Oh yes, my parents were really, you know, big breeders and owners and thoroughbreds, and it's you know just not for me." So you know, I decided to not continue with it. Now those same, you know, once uh, racing sort of fans are now asking me if I think that there should be a referendum on the ballot. Some are even getting together um, with other uh, like-minded people and uh, planning to get the signatures that are necessary to ban the sport. So, um, yes, I think that what happened at Santa Anita – um, it needs to be addressed. Uh, uh, I think that it needs to be addressed by applying diagnostic imaging as a screening device. But that's perhaps a, a subject for another uh, another podcast for you. But um, absolutely, uh, California is the litmus test for us all, and I think that it's under very real threat at the moment for having the sport banned.
0: Well, the public is certainly engaged, and of course, so are we. And we thank you so much for sharing this perspective that we have been sorely lacking on this program. So thank you so much, Dr. Lyons, for your time and insight.
1: My pleasure. Thank, thank you for what you do. Our thanks
0: to Dr. Sheila Lyons and to Ed Gretton. In 1999, I interviewed Mary Lou Whitney, who arrived with a guy I thought was her chauffeur. But the person who helped set up the chat said, Oh, you didn't know? The guy, her husband, was 40 years younger. You might not expect the society woman to race sled dogs in Alaska or mosh pit dance at a Grateful Dead concert. But there was no restraining Mary Lou's overflowing effervescence in so many different arenas did she flirt. Yet what brought Mary Lou the most pleasure was the sport of thoroughbred racing, particularly in Saratoga Springs. I don't think we can comprehend just what she did for that town, infusing it with panache and other things. We lost the Sports Grand Dam last week at the age of 93, two weeks before she enters the Hall of Fame. Eccentric, yes, but with a heart made of 24-karat gold, adding luster to the legendary Whitney name